and then I'll preach another sermon. Lord Jesus, thank you for these truths. They come from your word on the screen. We saw so many Bible references to verify that these truths are found in your word. These, this is not the religion of men. This is, these are not ideas or opinions or preferences that human beings would make up for ourselves and cast upon and make a believe God. The, this, is, this is evidence of a God of a different kind of kingdom than an earthly and man-like, man-driven, man-centered kingdom. We thank you for these truths, even the harder ones, the, the bitterer p- pills to swallow with bitter taste. We thank you that you make them sweet, that you turn them to life instead of resulting in what we deserve, which is death. We thank you that you would talk to us and teach us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, uh, today is uh, kind of what I would call a uh, one-off sermon. Uh, we've been going through and preaching the book of Revelation for the better part of a year. Uh, we're going to make it into October, which will make it a full year of going through the book of Revelation. Um, we've been doing that alongside of our sister church in Albany, uh, which is Greenbrier Church, um, one of our sister churches in Acts 29. Uh, Pastor Tim Bice and I have been preaching the same sermons uh, along the same timeline uh, to both of our churches, and it's been quite an adventure. Uh, I'm still preaching from Revelation today. But I'm going back to the earlier parts of Revelation, um, and I, I just want to kind of get a Fred Flintstone running start. Do you know what I mean by that? You probably don't know, because uh, I'm very, very weird. If you remember Fred Flintstone, Fred Flintstone was an ancient, uh, an ancient cartoon that was on TV from a, a company called Hanna-Barbera. That's probably, like, you don't even need that. But Fred Flintstone was a caveman, and, like, if he was in danger or wanted to get somewhere fast and started running, like, he would hop up in the air, and then his feet would spin in place, and then all of a sudden he'd go and disappear. That's what all of my introductions to my sermons are. I'm Fred Flintstoning in the air. Today's sermon, thank you for being so kind and patient with me. Today's sermon was conceived of and born of my trip to Guatemala with uh, one of our deacons, Stuart McGinnis, he's also an elder candidate, as well as two members of our church, Steve Burton and Alan Tillman. Um, And over the course of that week spent in Guatemala, here's how today's message was stirred up in me to bring to you, RCC. Uh, number one, Pastor Francisco Benefeld, uh, he's the pastor of Casa de Libertad. I hope Nancy Dye heard me and I said that right. He preached from the final letter to the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor here in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And I was, listen, I was struck by the unity of biblical interpretation and teaching that he and I share, even though He and I have never really met in person. We never had a real conversation. And he lives over 2,000 miles away from us. And uh, while we were listening to an English translator of his sermon in real time on our earbuds, uh, it it was amazing that the the Word of God, it transcends language and geography and culture. It transcends mere human language, right? Right? And what he, what he taught from this book, here in this chapter that we're going to see today, um, it would have been good and true and useful to any American just as, it would, just as it was to Guatemalans, just as it would be to Japanese people or Ugandan people or Swahili people or people from New Zealand. And it, it gave me a sense of oh, like real reassurance and kind of affirmation that what Pastor Tim and I are, have been preaching to you in our, church, in our churches, it's, it's properly in step with gospel-centered Bible preaching in other places of the world, all right? 
So that, that was where this sermon got birth, because he preached on something that I preached to you uh, about a year ago. Number two, we met with five church planters while we were down there. We were seeking a long-term mutual church planting partnership and friendship uh, with, with a church in Guatemala. Uh, we are part of what's called the Acts 29 Network. It is, an, is a globally diverse family of church planting churches. So we plant this church coming up on 10 years uh, ago, uh, come this January. And, and we're not into church planting just because we planted a church, but we want it to be one of the like, driving central values and missions and things that our church focuses on and really cares about, which is seeing the gospel get to the entire world through planting more churches. I'm not just an Acts 29 pastor. My goal is that Stuart would help me see see a way to disciple our church and get you to recognize that your identity as people of this church, you are a church planting church. I'm not, just a ch- I'm not the only one who cares about this idea that we would care about and invest ourselves in this endeavor. So these are churches that we met, that we met with their pastors and some of their members. They're, all these church, churches are younger than us. Some of these pastors have recently planted. Some of them are about to. Uh, and so we met with these, each of these pastors over either lunches dinners, coffee, um, and, and Stuart had a battery of very well-thought-out th- questions to kind of not interrogate, but to interview and get to know them to help us get a sense of how we might pray over and select one. I, 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 it was very difficult for me because uh, we stayed in an orphanage. Some of you would go to an orphanage, and you would struggle with, I want to adopt them all, right? I don't feel that way. I love them all. Maybe I might adopt one, right? But meeting with these church planters, I want to be friends with all of them. I want our church to partner with all of them, right? Um, each of them were very humble and kind, forthcoming. They were open, and they answered these question, questions. Um, what drives the culture around you? How the gospel of Jesus might address the, the lost in your, your area? Uh, what, is, what do you believe the Lord has laid on your heart as a vision for your church? Um, and, and we wanted to lay out for them, like, just any, we were looking for, we're looking for any way that we can get behind our brothers and sisters in Guatemala and, and just get behind them and push. We don't want to show up as wealthy, predominantly white Americans to show up and tell them, this is how you do church, uh, and we're here to teach our little brothers. Uh-uh, we're not interested in that. And they've seen plenty of that. And it's, it's, it's not only offensive, it really is insulting, and it's not gospel-centered. Nearly to a man, each one of these pastors had their own question. They, they hadn't talked to each other. They hadn't like powwowed together beforehand. They, they didn't have a group plan. Each of them to a man... They had this essential question, and it was in a real, true partnership between our churches. It seems very evident to us what a church from a wealthier country might have to offer to us. But what exactly is it you think that we have to offer to you and your church? I had, I had two responses. One was, uh, I don't know. We don't know you. So when and my, my analogy was, uh, for those of you men uh, who are married, when you first met your wife, what struck you first and foremost was her beauty, right? That was the most apparent and evident thing. But you wanted to get to know her. Why? Because behind that beauty, were, you were thinking and hoping that there was a wealth of other hidden, equally beautiful and attractive treasures about who she is and how valuable she would be, and what a, what a blessing it would be to, to be friends with her and be close to her all the time. 
but it, it takes going on dates. It takes becoming friends and getting to know each other before those things get discovered. And it takes some time of dating and getting to know each other uh, before then you and your future wife start to like really get a vision for what is our life together going to be about? What's our, what's our marriage vision for? What are we going to do together? So I said, first of all, I don't know. So I'm just saying, let's be friends and get to know each other. But two is the answer that uh, this whole sermon offers. And that's going to come at the end. That's a technique that pastors and preachers and teachers and, 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 and lecturers that just build tension and then just leave you hanging until the end. So you have to, you have to pay attention. Don't, if you're at home, don't log off. Get away to the whole thing, all right? My answer, though, was the same for each of these guys, and that response is what I've been praying and thinking over and chewing over in preparation for this sermon, which brings me back to the sermon that Pastor Francisco preached that week while we were there. The same sermon text that I preached from to our church about a year ago. So I, I have my own reasons and thoughts as to why on this particular Sunday, this is such a timely message for our church, but those are more personal reasons. But there is a timely and good and right time for this Sunday to be the Sunday that I preached this. Not simply for the church, like the United States Church of the Global, but this unique body of believers, those of you who are gathered here, those of you who are out of town uh, and you're watching, you better be watching, uh, and worshiping the Lord with us far away. So as you turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, I want to remind you of three things, all right? These are some of these things that I've been repeating for the last year as we encounter the book of Revelation. Number one, the book of Revelation is given to us in the Bible so that we might overcome when under attack. God's people, the church, we are under attack. We are under attack. And this book, this mysterious book in apocalyptic language is given to us so that we can overcome. We can last. We can stick and stay in faith and stay Christian, stay with Jesus, stay loyal to him, stay believing even when we're under attack, even in the middle of the worst of suffering. And that leads to one of the main questions today. Who, who is threatening the brothers and sisters of Restoration, Restoration City Church in this day, in this time, of Christians in America in this day? What, what exactly is that attack? What is the, what's the threat like? Number two, the book of Revelation was written to be understood. It's written to be understood. There are some people who fall on one or, one or the other side of a very long and divisive teeter-totter. Those who believe that they can interpret and understand explicitly and particularly every last little thing, image, metaphor, analogy, and symbol in the book of Revelation. And then the other side that goes, that's way too hard. We're not supposed to understand any of it, so let's not even read it. We don't have to bother with it. And neither of them are right. It's meant to be understood in a way that blesses us, and it's a blessing that comes directly from God himself, Jesus Christ. See, with all the mystery, all the symbols, all the metaphor shrouded in apocalyptic language, Jesus has given his churches the truth and knowledge that we do need. He is not giving us the things that we think we need or the revelation of mysteries that he has determined to keep shrouded in metaphors. But he has written things here for us that we do need to understand and we can understand. That's the second primary question for today is, what, what do we need this letter for? What do we need this? How, how, how could it be a blessing to us? And number three, these letters were written to churches that Jesus loved. These letters were written to churches that Jesus loved. Do you know why? Because the church, God himself in his word says, that's my bride. If you have a girlfriend, if you have a wife, and you love her, then you know how he feels. He wants to protect, for, protect her, provide for her, 
show her to be beautiful and wonderful to everyone around. He treasures her. He lays himself low, puts her interest, her needs before himself, right? And so that's how God feels about his church. These are churches that Jesus loves. He loves them. They're messages from Christ. He is the head of the body, the groom of the church bride, and it's written out of a heart of love. Now, some of the, some of the letters that you find at the beginning of the, of the book of Revelation, some of these letters contain like really weighty words, weighted down more by a tone of encouragement and honor, like heavy encouragement, heavy honor. I see you. I see what you're under. I see how difficult it is, but I love you. Stick with me. You will have the crown, right? But some of the others carry more of the weight and tonality of like correction or even disapproval warning and rebuke. And each of them conclude with a promise from Jesus, one that is guaranteed to those who will overcome, to those who conquer, those who persevere and stick with the Lord. But all seven, whether, whether each letter, any particular letter is a letter of rebuke and warning and disapproval, or if it's a letter of, oh, you're, I love you, I'm so proud of you, keep going, stick with me. Either way, each of these letters is written by a loving God to a people that he loves dearly. So I want you to look at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. Now this is the apostle John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. This, when he was with Jesus in, uh, at, the, at the turn of the century, when, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was likely the youngest of disciples. He could have been 17, 18, 19 years old. He was probably the youngest. And he was one of the young pups who got to be drawn in not only to Jesus' inner 12 disciples, but he was like one of Jesus' inner three disciples. He was on the inside. And now he's an old, old, old man, and he's, he is hearing from the Lord Jesus. This is what John is supposed to write down. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, the church in Laodicea needed to recognize that everything that's being said here comes from God. Don't, don't read that too fast. Don't hear that too fast. This comes from God. Like when you're a kid and your big brother or big sister comes and says, hey, uh, you're supposed to clean your room. What are you as a younger sibling, because you're supposed to be kind of a, a jerk, kind of a turd, you're supposed to go, what are you going to say? Who says? Right? Well, just you're supposed to clean your room. Are you going to do it? Mm, no, probably not. Not unless they beat you. But dad said, what, what do you mean? He wrote this note. Oh, that's dad's handwriting. I don't care who's telling me that dad said it. I know that dad said this. There's authority here. See, the, the ancient Laodiceans, the Christians in this church, they needed to recognize that this wasn't stuff that was coming from their own local pastor or pastors. It's, this, these aren't, this isn't the words of the Apostle John. As great and influential as he was, he was with Jesus. He was there at the crucifixion. Jesus handed Mary, his mom, over to John to take care of after he died. G John was a big deal. Like Billy Graham level, just like notoriety as a pastor. Everyone was supposed to listen to John. Like they all knew about John. But th these aren't John's words to the Laodiceans. These are God's words to the Laodicean church. This isn't a message for their consideration. When, this is, when you open this and read it, when it's read to you, when it's taught to you rightly, when it's preached to you rightly, this is not for your consideration. This is for your obedience. 
an obedience which leads to your flourishing. It's an obedience that leads to your joy and your safety. Not an obedience that robs you of joy and robs you of fun and robs you of coolness, but it, it's, an, it's a word that you are to trust and obey because it is the best way coming from a God who loves you, who has your best interest. You're, you, you should question your salvation if Christ is mainly your coach, but really not your king. He, he has no interest in being your consultant. He is king or he's really nothing to you. These are words to be believed and obeyed in a way and to an extent that no one can give to you. No human being is permitted to talk this way. Only the creator God who owns everything is allowed to talk this way. These words are from, he identifies himself. This is Jesus dictating a letter to John. He says, these, these are the words of the amen. When you say amen at the end of your prayer, that's not, that's not for you to go, all right, bye, Jesus. All right, we're done, Jesus. Thanks for the meeting, Jesus. All right, see you later. After a while, crocodile. It's meant to be what amen really means and what it needs to mean when you say amen. In the middle of a, set, uh, a prayer, at the end of a prayer, when you hear the truth, when you hear something good and you recognize it's from the Lord, you say it. In the middle of a sermon, perhaps. Amen. Cool. <laughs> what this is meant to be is, yeah, that's right. That's true. It's, it, ha, it, it carries the weight of Lord at the end of a heartfelt, struggling, whispered, moaning prayer. Lord, please let it be. Please let it be. Yes, I, yes, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Yes, I have faith. Please fill me with faith. Yes, it is true. Let it be true. This is the truth of my heart, confessed and poured out to you, and you are true. That's what amen ought to be. Referring to, with Christ referring to himself as the amen, means that he's saying, this letter comes from the one who you say amen to. When you say amen, I'm the one you're saying that to. It says he's the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These words are just as direct from the mouth of God as all the red-lettered texts of the four Gospels. So if you have the kind of Bible where all of Jesus' direct words are in the Gospels and they're in red, these are just as red as any others. And if you have my kind of Bible, like, they're all red. Because why? It's Jesus talking, who is God. And he identifies himself as the beginning of creation. He's not calling himself a created thing. He's not a created person. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I'm the, I'm the beginning of cre creation begins from me. I'm the fountainhead of all existence. Like the mere concept of something existing, someone existing, a universe existing. The universe's existence depends on God existing. If God doesn't exist, nothing else exists. He is existence. And all existence flows from him. That's his ownership. That's his sovereignty. That's his power. That's his authority. That's his right. And these... Very people in Laodicea, as well as us, we exist and we continue to exist at the good pleasure and grace and the will of this person who's speaking. Why is he going, why is he taking the pain in that first opening statement to assert the identity and authority? Because again, because the church needs to listen, pay attention, perk up, sit up. 
to not check your Facebook on your phone during the sermon, to, not, to, di- to discipline your mind and heart, not to wander off and think about your job or what you're going to do this afternoon or who's playing the game or what your week is like, but to perk up and sit up, not because of the fool who's shouting at you, but because of the word of God, the word of life that you need if you believe you really need it. You need to pay attention. And I'll, I'll, t- I just, I'll, I'll confess, I'll take ownership, uh, even though I don't think I'm like, I'm, I've, I've worked very hard not to participate in this sort of um, contributing to the problem. But the church in America today, some of you have been to those churches, but the church in America generally today is not helping this because the, when the people gather for church, the pastor so often gets up to give you a happy and a chipper, self-help, gospel-less, Christless message that is meant to encourage you and leaving you feel pumped up so that maybe next week he can tickle your ears with more stuff that makes you feel like you're really cute and awesome. And of course, God's glad that you're around. And now the message of the church becomes all about the communicator, the person, the messenger. I'm just, I want you to know I have a free conscience and a clean conscience to open the word of God and say very happy happy, joyful things that will make you feel good. And I have a clean conscience to tell you the very hard things because they've hit me before they ever hit you because I'm not writing the mail. I'm just delivering it. The church needs to listen. Like, 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 your, like your eternal soul depends on it. And not just listen, but obey. Verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were, it means I wish, I would rather you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What Christ knows by indicating that he knows their works. What he's saying, I know your works. You see, he knows the true and hidden status of their heart. I see what you say and do. And that that shows very clearly what's inside of you. See, Christ has the insight and perfect knowledge of what's in someone's mind and heart. Hebrews chapter 4 that says that God sees and reads every human soul, every human mind and heart like an open book where we all stand in front of him naked and exposed. There's nothing we can co- use to cover ourselves that God can't peer through to see your true bottom line motivations. And I'll tell you this. We live in an American society, specifically an American Christian society, where one might go, well, of course, God, only, only God can judge me. Well, first of all, I would really rather, if I'm reading the Bible rightly, I would really rather Christians who love me judge me in order to serve me so I can walk in step with Jesus and obey him where I'm wrong and perhaps I didn't know it, rather than never be judged and served and, and corrected and brought back on course until the final day where, where I stand before God and only God judges me. I don't want to wait for the judging to start then. I would, I would rather have loving Christians who are looking out for my good in Christ the same way Christ looks out for it to discern my words and my actions and then discern what is behind those actions. Well, you know, no one, no one sees into the heart of people. That's true. That's true. None of us see into the internal things and workings of a human being like God does. But I will tell you this. It doesn't even take the supernatural and omniscient power of God to know what 
a person really loves what they really care about and what they truly believe. You won't know it to the same sense and same confidence that God does. But you do. If you're a Christian, you, then you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. He gives you in wisdom. He gives you insight when you need it. If we believe what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And then along with that, the, the impressive content of the Bible when it talks about this very subject, the instruction of the Bible to Christians on how we are to look and observe, think, feel, and yes, estimate and judge the words and the actions of people who say they belong to Christ. I'll give you three. In Luke chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You're getting instructions from the Lord, Jesus himself. He's going, listen, you can tell. Like, there's a lot of time you can tell. Like, what they said is coming out of their heart. I don't really mean that. Uh, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't mean it now that you've been caught. Maybe now that someone else heard it. But it's coming from somewhere inside of you. It's a real thing inside of you. In James chapter 3, verse 10, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Because of the, out of the abundance of the heart comes what you say. And out of Christians, he's calling, he's, James says, to brothers, to sisters, he says, oh, it can't be so. Because like, if you're a good tree, then you produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And you got both coming out of you, that needs to get sorted out. We got to figure out what's inside of you and which one is growing and which one is dying. And then Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their what? Their fruits. I'm not making that up. That's not Joel Osteen. It's, John, it's not John Piper. If you don't know who those names are, Google the second one, forget the first one, right? That's big guns upstairs. That's God in the flesh, Jesus. And he's telling us, he's telling these things to us so that we are to put them to use. Those are instructions on how to discern the heart of people based on what they say and do. God shares in those three verses, as, 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 as I said, as well as in a multitude of others, how we are to become more and more discerning in the words and actions of other people. Before some of you are like, yeah, but you're not supposed to judge. The Bible says judge not. Does it say that? Yes, it does. Just don't stop there, because it doesn't stop there. Judge not, lest ye be judged according to the measure by which you're judging. The instruction is not to never judge. The instruction is to judge the way God judges, and not the way men judge. To have a Holy Spirit-empowered insight that discerns the truth about what someone says or does with the charity and the mercy and the grace of God, but also the knowledge of God to be able to tell the truth and discern what, what's, what's underneath those words and those actions inside of that person's heart and mind. And by the way, this is an instruction to the church for the church. 
So for the Christians, we follow the example of Paul and the instruction he gives us in the Bible when Paul says, listen, I don't judge those outside. What do I have to do with that? We judge those inside the church, those who profess Jesus. I mean, the world's going to world, right? Sinner's going to sin. We don't judge them that way, but we judge one another this way for our brother and sister's good before the Lord. Jesus says, I know your works. He goes, listen, I want you, Jesus doesn't need the Laodiceans' works in order to know what's in their heart. Do you know why he says, I know your works? Even though I read your minds and hearts like open books, Jesus says, I want you to know that I see what you're doing and saying. I need you to know that I see how you're living. I need you to be able to see this. You need to look at yourself. And the whole rest of the world, the non-Christians, the lost people around you, they can see it too. And it's all on display. I don't need your works to see what's in your heart. You need to look at your works. The world is looking at your works. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were either one. I would rather you be either one. Essentially, Jesus is going, I, I wish you were at least cold. I would rather you be cold in unbelief. I would rather you were cold in a way that even if you were apathetic and really didn't care at all that you need God and don't know him, that you're a sinner and that you're under God's wrath and judgment and you deserve it and you're not really, you don't really have a problem, at least we're dealing with the truth. At least you're telling the truth. I don't believe in God. Don't care. Well, I hate God. Well, I don't hate him. I just don't believe in him. Like, what do you, don't talk to him. He might as well be a unicorn. Jesus goes, I would rather you be there because at least you and I are standing in the same place telling the truth. But you're not telling the truth. I wish you were hot. I wish you were hot in belief, like hot in desire. And Jesus here is not going, I wish you were on fire for Christ, going on mission trips and adopting orphans and picketing abortion offices and audio. No, no, no. He's saying, I, I just wish your heart was on fire, even if it was just simply desperate need. If it was just hot desperation, if you could see the reality of who you are without me, and then you would fall on your knees and go, I, I need you, God. Like, not just this year, not just this day. I need you the second. I'm about to go to bed, and unless you decide to keep pumping blood through my veins, I'm going to show up at your throne. I need to wake up in the morning and still be a Christian. And I, I have... I don't, have the, I don't have the ultimate say, the final control in that. I wish you were hot. I wish you felt something, specifically desperate need. Here's the problem is that the Laodiceans aren't finding any salvation from Jesus because they're finding no satisfaction in him. I don't do this a lot. You write that down. You have received no salvation from Christ if you have received and found no satisfaction in him. If you want to know, how do I know if I'm really saved? Because every Christian, if you're going to be honest, at some point has wrestled with that. Some of us more, some of us less. One of the evidences that I would just urge you to look for would be, do I find satisfaction in knowing Jesus, in belonging to him? Do I find any satisfaction that God loves me? The son died for me. He didn't deserve it, but he did it. And he's made promises that I have a hard time believing and living in, but I'm holding to those 
Do I find any satisfaction? Do I find my hope? Do I find, in the end, something and everything could be stripped away, but at least I got him. The Laodiceans didn't feel that way. That's what he's saying. You see, and, and the reason he talks like, about like hot, cold, lukewarm, this is water. The, the city of Laodicea didn't have a natural resource. See, Jesus knew the people he's talking to. He knew the context. He knew the culture. They had to get all of their water from a series of Roman aqueducts. These are big water-carrying troughs that come down from hills and mountains where there is a pure water source, and it's built up on walls and bricks and arches. And the Romans built these, and they delivered water to places that had no clean source of water. Laodicea was far away from the nearest source of local water, but Laodicea was a wealthy and influential city, and the Romans were very in invested in putting a lot of infrastructure into Laodicea. So they built a lot of aqueducts to carry water from a long way away to hydrate and feed and help this city survive. So they had a lot of water, Laodicea did. But by the time it got to them, it wasn't hot, and it wasn't cold. It's tepid. Something happens to the flavor of Coca-Cola when it's ice cold to lukewarm to sitting in your car on a hot day at Six Flags, and you come out and open it up, right? It's a, it's a vastly different, three different experiences, yes? It wasn't good. It wasn't cold and fresh. It wasn't boiling hot so that the impurities were moved. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't good, but they had a lot of it. Isn't, isn't that an analogy for, the Amer for American society? It's not great, but we got a lot. Welcome to Golden Corral. It's not bad. It's not good. But we'll shove as much of this junk down your gullet as you can eat. That's the American way. As much as you can eat. Not as much as you ought to. As much as you can Jesus says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. You don't taste good. I have no use for you. You're tepid. You're lukewarm. You're gross. And it's because of how you feel about me. Their lukewarmness is based off of how they feel about God. So my primary question number one is, today, I said it earlier, how are we Christians under attack? American Christians... Like, what's that attack look like? What's the threat look like? Who's attacking us? I want you to look at verse 17. Jesus says, here's your problem. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They believe one thing, and Jesus tells them the truth. See, we, the American church, not I'll be so bold as to say, Restoration City Church. In person here, online there, week in, week out, not only on Sundays, but day to day as Christians. This church, we are under the same threat as the Laodicean Christians 2,000 years ago. I don't say that lightly. This before any of you go, man, he just hates America. He's, he's one of them Christians who bashes them. I love America. I'm, after being in Guatemala for a week, I like living here. I've been to other first world countries like England and Scotland. I love those, but it's easy to be there, but I want to live here. It's a great gift from God. 
But we are under the same threat as the Laodiceans. They weren't Americans. This is why the Lord Jesus has seen fit to rightly preserve the Bible for so long, for 2,000 years ago. This was written for people 2,000 years ago, and the Lord has rightly and properly preserved it for our church today. Why? Because we need it just as much as the original audience did. Here's your problem, Laodicea. You are convinced. You, you're secure. You're secure in believing that you're rich, that you're prospered, that you're prospering, and you really don't have much need of anything. Do you want to know what that you want to know what that deception looks like for an American Christian in today? to believe that you're not in need? My hope is that this is the scalpel of a pastor who loves you as a surgeon doing heart surgery. You want to find out if you're in that spot? All right, it's time for prayer requests. How can we pray alongside of you, for you, with you? Eh, I don't know. That's what that looks like. Well, things are pretty good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, we're good, you know. You don't think you have need. You have no idea. The danger, the wretched state, the threat. You have no, you've, apparently you've lost sensibility of what a war zone you live in as a Christian. In the, in the world that is, that is ruled under God's authority, but it's ruled by the, by the, by the son of destruction, of Satan. But you know, at best, what it, what it, what's getting communicated is, ah, uh, yeah, and Jesus is my savior. I mean, I don't don't really need that much saving. Sometimes I, I need a little bit of help, but I, got, I pretty much got this. I don't have to really feel like I need to hit my knees. Don't really feel desperate. I don't really feel like I need to plead with him. Don't feel like I need to really put down much of conveniences or career or comforts in order to really get and talk to the Lord. And like I. Like, I don't really feel much of a need to pray to him like he's, like, you know, sleepy and deaf. See, I'm, a, I'm what you call a Reformed pastor. I'm trying to disciple what's called a Reformed church. I won't unpack that. But I will say, there is something that we as a church could learn from our more charismatic brothers and sisters because they pray like they actually need him to do something. They pray like he's sleepy and hard of hearing. While people of my tribe, of, my, of our tribe, we tend to preach theology lessons to the Lord because we think it, it pleases him and makes him real happy that we know our Bible and we read some theology. But it doesn't please him, please him because we're not voicing our need for him to be our pleasure, our desperate need of him. In reality, Jesus says, you're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. The Christians, the ancient Laodiceans, they would have heard this and they would have felt like Jesus was staring right at them, reading their mail, sitting in a tree with like binoculars, spying on them, because he is nailing everything about who they are and what kind of city and culture they've lived in and adapted themselves to. This diagnosis of their problem shows that he knew everything about their city and their culture and he knew what was in their hearts. This is a city of great wealth, and the Christians of this city were known for being wealthier Christians. The Christians here in this church, they had plenty of money. It might not have been like Bill Gates rich, but they were like, you know, Fayetteville, Peachtree City rich. They're doing okay. 
This was a city of great wealth. The Laodicean church didn't seem historically to suffer the same sort of persecution or the extent of persecution that the other six churches of Asia Minor did. They were treated quite fairly. They weren't in constant danger of suffering, of being imprisoned, of being executed, of being excluded, of being mocked, of being killed just because they were Christians. Totally different story for the other six churches in Revelation. And the city was known for its health spas, right? Basically, health spas, right? It was a source of like medicines and herbs and ointments and people from all over. So like specifically, historically, it seems like um, it's implied that Laodicea was a place that if you needed an eye doctor, that's where you went. The Christians here were well taken care of. Finally, the city was a center of production and trade for textiles. You're like, okay, all this stuff. I don't need the history lesson on Laodicea. You do. They didn't. But if you want to understand what Jesus is saying, then you're going to need to understand this. In this city, fine, expensive, warm black wool was produced. They had the best sheep of black wool, like the perfect black wool. And that was very rare. And they had herds and herds and herds. All, like the Roman Empire surrounding them, people would pay top dollar, big money, to have clothes that were woven from this very rare and expensive and beautiful dark-colored wool. And the people who lived here, well, they bought it wholesale. They bought it wholesale. And they had plenty of it. They looked good. And Jesus says, you're thinking you're, you think you're doing just fine. Your health is good. And you think it'll last forever. You think that being a Christian is pretty acceptable in your world. In fact, it's not a bad deal. It's not a bad deal. Like, uh, wow, this is great. Jesus said a lot of things about suffering, but uh, I can say that Jesus is God and I, uh, I follow him. And all the people around me who don't love him, they don't hate me. This doesn't hurt to be a Christian. Doesn't seem to cost me anything. I have good warm clothes. I live in a place of plenty. Essentially, the Christians in Laodicea didn't face that constant and ongoing reality of any sort of cost of carrying a cross. And Jesus, Jesus is saying that they need to know that their money, their convenience, their societal acceptance, or at least the, the tolerance the society had for them, the comfort, their freedom, their possessions, their good health, they need to know that those things can and will go away. That moth Rust, fire, and thief can touch those things and will. That those things can't, they could maybe save your life for a day or month or a few years, but they don't save your soul. And when you get something that makes your soul feel a little better, you all know what that's like. Someone's gotten something new lately, like upgraded your iPhone lately, right? Your Android phone, gotten a new gadget. Maybe you got a new pair of jeans, right? A pair of jeans, I always use this one. Man, jeans can really uh, kind of change your day, right? Good ones? Put them on, you're in the mirror, like, oh, look good in these jeans, right? You get that car, it's nice and shiny, and you feel pretty great for a little bit. And when it no longer kind of satisfies, and it no longer is it serving as the kind of the NyQuil for your soul to settle you down and make you feel a little better, you need another pair of jeans, you need a better car, you've uh, you got to upgrade the, the cell phone, it's not going to last. It doesn't actually fulfill you. It's not secure. It can't bear the weight of what you really need. Those things aren't God. And the comfort and the prestige and safety that they, fal they falsely promise you, it's, all that stuff, it's just kindling. It's kindling. 
And he says, you have no idea of the danger you're in. Because you think all that, and it's not true. Having those things, those are your true and hidden satisfaction. Those things you'll spend for. Those things you'll work for. Those are the things you'll suffer for. Those are the things you'll go through trial for. But me? You'll go to church for me. He says, you're in danger. What's the threatening attack and where does it come from? It's the odorless and poisonous gas. It doesn't smell like anything, but it's deadly poisonous gas of worldly pleasures and conveniences and possessions. It's, it's the secret hidden interest rate that is nowhere in the fine print as you continue swiping the credit card of your life, building up debt. And there's a hidden interest rate. It's a lie. They haven't revealed the full cost. And you're just building and building, buying and consuming and having. Just having. We're having. I have, I have, I have. Soothing your troubled soul with vacations, with houses, with trinkets, gadgets, media, good food, good drink, parties. See, the attack doesn't just come from Satan. You do have a real enemy. He is a roaring and ravaging lion, roaring about seeking for someone to devour. This is true. There are dark spiritual forces. And there is a dark, worldly, unbelieving system that does threaten you. But the threat that Laodicea is under is inside of them. The threat that we face, you face, and I face, Restoration City Church, our honored guests and visitors, those who are joining us online. The threat we face, the calls coming from inside the house. That's the threat. That's the attack. It's your natural born self. Not your supernatural born again in Christ identity. It's your natural born self. What Colossians chapter 3 calls the old person. And I'm going to tell you, This threat, this attack, is just hashtag, I said what I said. It's it's infinitely more dangerous than Satan. It's infinitely more dangerous than the unbelieving world and people who hate Christians and want to take away your freedoms, chop your head off because you don't have the mark of the beast, won't let you buy nothing, put you in prison, burn you alive. This is way more dangerous than that. That's a bold claim, Pastor Matt. Being mocked and having our traditional Christian American ideals infringed on and having our constitutional rights threatened as we worry about the possibility that we might not be able to gather as a church or practice our religion with a clean conscience because we might get fined or arrested or persecuted or made fun of or whatever. That's, that's serious. I'm not poo-pooing that. That's serious. That's a legitimate worry. But those, those are attacks from the outside from other people. And Jesus' warning in Matthew is not to fear those who can kill your body, but to fear him who can not only kill your body, but kill your soul and send you to hell. And that's him. Being executed by the Taliban for being a Christian is horrific, and it's terrifying, and it's wicked and abominable. And you won't go to hell for it. You won't go to hell for being persecuted for Christ. Revelation 12 says you have great reward because you overcome the evil one. You didn't love your life. 
even to the point of death, but you overcame by the gospel believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he's given it to you. What you ought to be afraid of is trusting in a self-deceiving, culturally bound American religion that uses the name of Jesus and his church, his bride, in order to gain a sense of religious security while we go on chasing our own worldly dreams and our own ways and our own desires and our own pleasures. That will send you to hell. I don't care what you said about the prayer that you prayed when you were seven at a, at a church camp. That will send you to hell because the Lord can see not just your works, he, he sees your heart, he sees your soul. I said this is a letter of love from Christ to a church he loves, and it doesn't seem, at least at face value, at least the way I'm preaching it, like it seems or feels very loving, right? Again, if you're new, welcome to Restoration City Church. Thanks for staying with me so far. I want to ask you this. The doctor who sees your, your cancer on the scan but doesn't tell you, is that a good doctor? Is that a loving doctor? He doesn't want to worry you. He doesn't want to hurt your feelings. So he doesn't tell you the truth about the cancer that's killing you? That's not a good doctor. It's not a loving doctor. The neighbor who sees the rapist crouching in the bushes outside of your dorm, your dorm door, and the neighbor who sees it and they don't say anything or do anything or alert you, is that a good neighbor? Is that a loving neighbor? Is that a friend? No. But the Jesus who loves this church is the one who warns her of da her danger, and now he offers a cure, the answer, the path out of that danger. Why? Second question, primary one, why do we need Jesus to give us this message? Why do we need this as much as the Laodiceans? How is it a blessing? How is it actually a blessing for him to go, here's your problem, because he's the physician we need who doesn't just show us the, the, the terminal cancer diagnosis, but he's the only one who can cut us open and remove the cancer and bring us to health and life. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy gold from me. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Different kind of gold than you have. Different type of wealth than you have. So that you may actually be rich. Truly rich. Rich the way I consider rich. That you can, you can have white garments so that you may clothe yourself. So that the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And a salve, an ointment to anoint your eyes so that you can really see. All those things, he says, I have the stuff what you need. You think you have, all, you have nothing that you need. All the things you can lay hold of and get? Nuh uh Trade that stuff in and get from me what you really need. The salvation that you need from the, th from the threat inside of your own heart and mind. Seeking comfort, satisfaction, ultimate safety, ultimate meaning, ultimate significance, ultimate just peace from stuff you can get, the pleasures and comforts and conveniences of this world. This is the same drum that Jesus is beating throughout the whole Bible from the beginning and all the way here to the end. It is to believe in and trust in and find your ultimate satisfaction, pleasure, and peace, your security and your soul in God above any and all. It's the gospel message of Jesus Christ not simply to be afraid of hell and be excited about a paradise heaven, but to hate your sin and despair and have your despair dispersed 
like a fog when the sun comes out and find hope and gladness and courage and satisfaction because God is here and he wants you. He wants you. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives one of his shortest parables. I'll illustrate this, this way with his parable. In Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Covers back up. And then he, in his joy, sorry about that Jim Carrey moment, all right? Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, everything he has, and he buys that field. What does that tell you about his value? Whatever was in there was worth as much, if not more, than everything else he has. This is a person who's lived, he's got a life in this world. The guy in Matthew 13, I wouldn't be too far-fetched to describe him as, as a guy who, he's got a wife, he's got a house, he's got a career, a car, maybe two cars. He's got his like, work car, his every, everyday driver. Then he's got, a, he's got a play car, right? A car that he drives on the weekend, maybe a motorcycle. He has televisions, a smartphone. He, goes on, he has the ability to go on like, vacations and trips. He's got a security system. He's got hobbies. He's got, he's, he's got a garage full of tools. He's got the stuff he needs to work on cars, right? He's got like really epic computer gaming system, whatever. He's, he's, he's got the stuff. And I'm not talking like Bill Gates. I'm talking about stuff that I know that almost all of us in this room have. We, we have it. And by the way, we still find ourselves on so many days bored to tears and unfulfilled and dissatisfied. Isn't that a truth? He's got Ikea furniture, fridge with enough food. He's got friends and drink and food and fun. And then he finds a treasure in a field. He finds a treasure, something that nothing else that he has or that he can get for himself, nothing can do for him what, what he just found. It's of such value, he's willing to get rid of his nice new Ford or Dodge or Chevy or Toyota pickup. He just, he just got it financed, too. He's willing, to, he's willing to hawk and sell all of his tools on eBay. His wife, his wife gets in on the deal, too, and she sees it, too. And she goes, here's all my crafting materials. Here's my hobby Maybe she's, she's the one, maybe she's the one who works in the garage as a mechanic. Here's all the stuff. They look and they see their, their Falcons jersey behind the glass, Matt Ryan signed, worth a lot of money. Don't even look at it twice. We got to sell this. We got to get everything we have because what we can, we can trade this in and get something of like in, infinitely more pleasure and satisfaction and hope and peace because moth and rust and fire and thief can touch all this, but it can't touch that. And this burns up. That is fire refined by gold. It lasts forever. What are Jesus' instructions here? What are instructions? What does he tell? Buy gold from me that's refined by fire. Get the wealth that moth and rust and fire and thief can't touch. I don't want you to trust your clothing and your beauty products and your medicines to make you feel as beautiful and as attractive as you desperately need to feel. You need to get me. I'm the one who will tell you that you are more attractive and beautiful and lovable and wonderful than Instagram could ever affirm you in. I don't care if you get 180,000 likes by, like, by, like Justin Timberlake gets. Uh-uh. 
his approval, his rule. You just got to have one like on that Instagram post. If it's from him, you got it made. You need the white garments of purity and righteousness, cleansing from your sin that only comes from the pure white lamb of God. You guys like this expensive black wool? Trade it in. I'm the pure white lamb of God, and I'm the only one who can really cover up your sin and your shame and humiliation. You, don't, you need the light of God. You need the new eyesight that Jesus brings to the blind, those who don't see and understand the truth about God and themselves and this life in this world. So trade it all in. And if you get God, you lose nothing. How do I say that? Because Paul goes, I consider everything I lose as gain. All the stuff, all the power, all the prestige, all the honor that I had, Paul says, as a great rabbi of rabbis. He's important. He had money, prestige. He's the right pedigree, right DNA, right family name. All that was trash. He uses the word, Greek word scubula. He calls it scubula. Don't say it, but any of you know what that means, literally? All right. Come to my house, go in the backyard, and find little piles of brown stuff. That's what scubula is. He considers all of that. Literally, in the Greek, he considers it that. Jesus says, you, you trade all that in for me, and if you get me, you lose nothing. You gain everything. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. You can just write that in your notes. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his life, putting all their money, all their care, all their thought, all their meditation, all their dwelling, all their dreaming and their scheming and everything. The person who does that and puts it into saving their life because they, they think the stuff, they think the beauty, they think the health, they, that that's going to, ah, that in my life is going to, that person's going to lose their life in spite of everything they're doing to try to keep a hold of it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, you'll actually save it. You'll save your life. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? You don't have, a, you don't have the kind of coin that God uses in some sort of exchange system. You don't have a, you don't have a morality, a good works, a righteousness coin that God accepts in his market. Do you know what coin he does accept? You can come in with your dollars. You can come in with your good works. You can come in with the time you spent preaching and teaching, leading Bible studies, going to orphanages, doing mission work, being a good person, telling the truth, never cheating on your spouse, not looking at dirty pictures. And when you show up before him, he goes, okay, so the kingdom of heaven, you coming in or not, I'd like to hear from you first. And you go, here's what I have. He goes, not interested. It already belonged to me. It already belonged to me. Do you know what he, what he demands of you in coin? It's something that he doesn't have, or at least he doesn't deserve. But he wants to take from you. Do you know what it is? It's three big nails and a crown of thorn that you have, you deserve. He'll take that. And he'll give you the gold and the white robe and his approval and his love because you are hot and you are desperate and you have come to him believing that he's the only person who can do this. And that's worship. That's trust. 
Verse 19. I'm sorry, before we get there, I'm going to give you a quote from a guy named Scott Salt. He's, he's a pastor in Tennessee. This is to alert us to how the gospel of Jesus is different from the gospel of our America. The gospel of Jesus says to love your neighbor, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The gospel of the American and Laodicean dream says to deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, and follow your dreams. Those two gospels are incompatible with each other. Verse 19, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I told you, this is a message of love. Jesus still loves the Laodiceans. He still loves American Christians. He still loves our church. He loves the American church. Even if we are under threat and attack, and we're, we're until this moment, we've been kind of blithely, just kind of like, you know, okay, being like Laodicea. He still loves us because here's the word being preached right now for a really long time by a really sweaty guy. And it's still in his book. He hasn't shut up. He hasn't walked away. He's still shouting. He's still talking. He's still going, come on. Come on, come, 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 come. The wrath of God, I've told you over and over again from the Bible is the wrath of God is demonstrated when God shuts up and just leaves you alone. When he gives, when he gives the unbeliever and the rejecter of Christ exactly what the rejecter of Christ wants, which is leave me the hell alone. He goes, okay, here's my wrath. I'll leave you alone. And Jesus, he loves, I reprove, I correct, and I discipline, I train, I restore those who I love. His command is to our hearts. He says, be, be zealous. The command is be zealous. He's telling you to feel an emotion. He, the amen, the beginning of creation, not Pastor Matt. This is not my interpretation. This is what he says. He's telling you and commanding your heart, you need to feel something today, now. Reading and seeing and hearing this, isn't it? I just want to know what the will of the Lord is. I just, I'm seeking God's will. He wants you to be zealous about this. Zealous? Like it matters. You're worked up. Maybe concerned. Maybe worried. Maybe alerted. Maybe cautioned. Maybe fired up and encouraged and motivated. Either way, be zealous. Well, you know, the heart just does what it does. You know, you know no one can really command the heart. He can. He's allowed to tell you how you're supposed to feel and how you're not supposed to feel. And if you're a Christian and you want to go, what do I pray for today? I, you start here. I go, Lord, I don't feel zealous about this. I, I know Pastor Matt really worked a long time and preached way longer than he ought to. And it's really, really sweaty. And he did a lot of shouting and gesticulating. It's like my first Sunday here. And I don't feel like I'm really bringing it the way he's bringing it. And so I'm a little scared to come back next week. It's okay. I expect nothing of, of you. But I'm just urging you. Pray and ask the Lord what, uh, for what you can't stir up in yourself right now then. Lord, make me zealous. Make me feel what I'm supposed to feel. Please help my heart. And then repent. Turn away from your love and satisfaction and comfort, your sin of adoring and paying all of your attention and emotional and mental bandwidth to the things you're saving up for and you're going to get into debt for or you're going to spend on or you're going to gather for yourself and get that you think is going to make you okay. Turn away from that. And pour all that dreaming and desire and scheming and planning and, and put it on God, who owns the cattle on a thousand. He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Turn to the field where your treasure lies. And in verse 20, to end, behold, I stand, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. How's he knocking? He, he wrote this letter to the church. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what the promise does not include? Streets of gold and a mansion in the sky, getting to play golf with Abraham and your, and your Christian grandpa who, who died when you were seven. That's not, that's not the promise. Maybe that stuff's there, but it's not the promise. The promise isn't about a paradise. The promise isn't about a redeemed and resurrected body. Are those part of the promise? Yes, but they are not the promise. Here's what the promise is. That you'll be with God. He'll be with you. And he'll be happy you're there. And you'll be with the fountainhead of all existence and all of creation, all of security, all of peace, all of approval, all... like. Here's how I knew my daughter Maggie when she was seven, when she finally became a Christian. Here's how I knew that we, we need to baptize this kid. is because she goes, I think I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'd like to get baptized. How do you know? And so we had long discussions, and we, she finally broke into tears. She goes, I'm just tired of being tempted to sin. I hate sinning. I don't like it, and I keep doing it. And I, sometimes I wonder if I just want to be a Christian, and then, then like, Jesus would let me die in my sleep so I could just be with him. I'll never sin again. That's a Christian want. That's not, that's not morbid. That's the heart of a little child who has been alerted to her need for a God who would love her and never leave her and would be happy to have her. He is the security. He's the comfort. He's the power. He's the one who makes you feel beautiful. He is the one who accepts you. He's the friendship. He's the peace. He's the one who shows you what your life means and why the suffering is worth it. So I close with the question that the Lord, and I close with the question that the Lord gave me in Guatemala. Remember the one that our Guatemalan church planting brothers asked? What is it you think we have to offer to your church? Here's why I want our church I want you, when you get a report next week from Stuart McGinnis, our deacon, over this, and he shows pictures and he gives you the rundown real quickly of, of the pastors and the churches that we met with, and when he asks you to pray for them and their families and their communities, the time comes then when we are to give and worship the Lord with our tithes and offering, and we're to give love offerings to this church that we're going to be friends with long-term. And then when the time comes to send letters to them of encouragement, when the time comes for some of you to pay out of your own pocket to get your passport updated and get on a plane and take precious, precious paid time, leave off from your work and go on a plane and go to a place like Guatemala and spend a week or two with these people, loving and serving and praying and worshiping with them, encouraging them, I want you to do it. You need to do it. Because this is what I believe they have to offer us. You see, I saw, I saw nakedness and hunger and filth. I saw extremely restricted rights and high crime and day-to-day -day survival with people who it was next to impossible for them to have hope or make plans for the future. The best of the homes, the best of them were cinder block with dirt floors. I, met, I got to go into the houses of Christians and I don't speak their language and they were very nice to let me speak English and have a translator interpret and um, some of these folks that they don't, they don't have like food 
Like it's not, it's not, a, it's not just an automatic default assumption that they're just going to go to the Kroger or the Publix or the Walmart or the Aldi and go grab some more. And I would go in their houses and they would, they would in futility, wipe off their bed or their couch, thinking maybe just the gesture of cleaning it would make me feel more comfortable, but, but they wanted me to, they would have me sit in the best, most comfortable spot and they would offer me their food. They had fewer rights to worship Jesus as a church than our government gives us. But they were far more free and liberated and bold, unashamed in talking about and saying the name of Jesus and asking for prayer and offering to pray, like in the middle of conversations. We, we open and close church meetings. We open and close business meetings and planning meetings with prayer, like it's an intro and outro. And they would want to stop in the middle of talking, conversation. Oh, let's pray to the Lord. They were bold in their talk of Jesus. Their clothes were cheap and ragged. They were old, dirty hand-me-downs. I saw more than I expected. I didn't expect anything. I I saw person after person wearing hand-me-down T-shirts that were sent from America of high school and middle school athletic teams. Old, worn-out T-shirts like that. That's what they had. Those who had shoes, they were pretty worn out and ragged. They were their only shoes, and they were dirty. And you know what? None of them seemed all that ashamed of their clothes or their dirty houses with no roof but a blue tarp. And they, none of them were very impressed at all that I had nice Target brand clothing. They weren't impressed by that. They weren't struck by that. And these people, they were hungry and they were desperate to hear God's word preached and they were desperate and they were willing and committed to do whatever it took to be with God's people Sunday mornings and in their town and their community and their village just so they could be, so they could open the Bible because most, a lot of these people don't even read their own language. They don't even read their own language. And so they want to go and find out what Jesus says because he's their hope, and they, they got to have hope, and they don't have, hope, they don't have any reason to have hope in anything around them. And they want to go and hear Jesus talk about who he is and what he's done and how much he loves them and what his promises are and what is the path for their life in all this suffering so they can flourish or find as much hope as any human could find in that sort of circumstance. I saw firsthand the miles, miles that most of these folks would walk up and down mountainsides, paved and unpaved surfaces, the creek that when it rains turns into a river threatening to sweep them away if they try to cross it just so they can go to church on Sunday morning, the cinder block churches with no air conditioning. You, you think these chairs are hard to sit in when I preach for this long? They had no coffee bars. They didn't have, had tiny, dark kids' ministry areas. Looked more like dungeons because that's the best thing. No big screens in technology. And they weren't letting, they weren't letting. They, the hard thing for them They weren't letting anything get in the way of coming back to the field over and over again to seek their treasure. It wasn't hard for them. Yeah, it was hard for them. It is hard for them. But it's worth it to them. 
And that's what our Guatemalan brothers and sisters have to offer us. That's what they have to offer us. They can be friends and family to us to serve us and give us a much needed example. They can serve and show us how we can obey Jesus, not just obey him, trust him, and, and not hear. Convenienced, safe feeling, I'm doing pretty okay. Loud to see in danger. Now, I'll tell you, the loudest, they were on the same mission as us. They were making disciples. And we're making disciples. The question is, what kind of disciples are we making? Are we making Laodiceans? Or are we making Guatemalans? Or are we making gospel Christians? Because they too have found the treasure in the field and they sold. They're willing to sell everything. 